0: Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas, I'm your host Adam Rourcliffe. So it's only been 11 days since the UK general election produced a hung parliament, uh, but it seems like months ago, Uh, and if Theresa May was expecting any respite, or an easy ride post-election, she certainly isn't getting any. Last Wednesday, a blaze erupted at Grenfell Tower in West London, quickly becoming one of Britain's biggest ever tower block fires, with at least 79 people dead. Theresa May the Conservatives have received criticism for everything from her reaction uh, to going to visit the victims and the policies which led to the disaster happening. On Sunday night, London again was victim of a spontaneous act of violence as a lone attacker drove a van into the crowds outside Finsbury Park Mosque. With the death toll still uncertain, many are calling this a terror attack no different to those of Westminster, Manchester and London Bridge and with still no formal deal agreed between the DUP and the Conservatives and Brexit negotiations beginning in earnest yesterday under David Davis's Davis's stewardship, Uh, there at least seems an atmosphere of uncertainty in the air. Uh, To discuss all this and more, uh, I'm joined by Jeff Kidder, Director of Membership and Events at the Institute of Ideas, Alistair Donald, Associate Director of the Institute of Ideas, uh, and also joining us is a special guest all the way from Liverpool, Pauline Hadaway. Uh, he's researching regeneration uh, practices at the University of Manchester and is also co-founder of the Liverpool Salon. So, uh, a lot has happened since the general election. Uh, I think everyone's still trying to find the lay of the land a little bit. People are saying there's turmoil in the air, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty. How do you think, uh, generally, overview, we should view the events of the last sort of week and a half? Jeff, would you like to kick us off?
1: Well, I would just say as an overview, I wouldn't say it was turmoil, but it, the context is important for understanding all the events we are going to be talking about and which are happening. So we have a weak government uh, where Theresa May didn't get the mandate she was looking for in the election. And even though still a functioning government... Led by the Conservative Party. They're still trying to cobble together a deal with the Democratic Unionist Party. Uh, most importantly, Theresa May herself has lost a lot of authority through what's happened in the election. And the official opposition of the Labour Party, To, in my impression, they come across as rather immature rather than a government in waiting. They're, they're very keen to protest and complain about things. You don't get that they, they don't... Uh, uh, look like a, a group of people who are about to take responsibility. Then on top of that, all these horrific ev- events have happened, from the uh, uh, Islamist bombings in Manchester and London, and now this attack on Finsbury Park Mosque, and then the fire uh, uh, last week. And these are all events which are important to explain and to understand and draw lessons from, but uh, to me, many people are looking for a deeper, broader meaning in a lot of the things that are happening, which often, in these in the secular times, and to me, often that meaning is just isn't there. What we have to do is stand back and try and understand, uh, uh, almost in a calculated fashion, what's happened, what lessons are to be learned uh, going forward.
2: Would you agree on that yeah, I mean, it is difficult to believe that it's just 11 days since since the election. And as Jeff said, we've had these huge uh, incidents or, or uh, events in the time since, which, uh, you know, obviously would be huge in their own right and big stories in their own right. But I think the uncertainty of, of the post-election period has just added to that um, as we, you know, without a government yet even having got through a, que- a, a Queen's speech... So, uh, in many ways, to me, the despite the magnitude of the events themselves, in some ways it's it's the reaction to them that's been the more interesting thing. And it does, uh, there's a couple of things that seem to be going on. First of all, uh, I'd say that um, politics uh, has been uh, particularly emptied out, I think, through the course of the election uh, and in the time since, which seems a strange thing to say in a way, but um, even for all the imagery that's associated with the Labour Party and what they're doing, there doesn't seem to be a lot of content in terms of the politics there to me and it does seem to me that we're in a moment where it's the politics of values that have particularly come to the fore in the time since. There was a really interesting uh, article in The Economist just after the election which was uh, basically asserting that uh, the culture wars have arrived in Britain and that's the impact of the election and there does seem to be a sense of how that's playing out in the last uh, period with the, all of these incidents to, incidents, to some extent uh, the reaction being shaped by the, the values of the particular uh, participants within the debate.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. Uh, Pauline? Yeah,
3: I'd, I'd like to I, I'd follow on from that. I think that's right. I mean, that this the, it felt very strange after an election where there just didn't seem to be any real substantial political discussion that almost the very next day after the election the newspapers were just full of um, stories and questions and articles and commentary first of all about brexit which just hadn't been properly Mm -hmm. discussed um, or argued about during the election and then yeah as all these um, very disturbing um, and upsetting events have unfolded there is a sort of rushing in to try and you know um, stake your claim Um, and the the public i feel you know as the public as a member of the public and as a voter i feel absolutely sidelined by this i feel as though we're being kind of just railroaded out and even people who are um you know have actually been Making um, useful contributions to questions like around housing and social housing policy and all sorts of people have been doing it they've kind of been drowned out in the noise it's become very much a kind of um, a morality play mm-hmm. and um, a lot of noise a lot of heat and it's politicised but again without any kind of useful kind of politics that might actually offer a solution or you know it's not it's like staking claims and um, and elbowing your way into the political arena and drawing attention to yourself and drowning out um, more thoughtful or, or um, considered approaches. I yeah. think that's a
0: really interesting point to make. It chimes in something Jeff was actually speaking to me about earlier, that not many people are looking at the broad overview that using these sort of initial news stories to state their broader objective of their claim. So I think that's really good context to set. Uh, so moving on to Grenfell, Alistair, maybe you can pick us up, uh, this up as our resident urban planning uh, expert, uh, but there's been a lot of talk around cladding uh, in the Grenfell disaster. It seems that mainly the cladding, which was applied to the building, uh, for whatever reason, uh, are partly to blame for the fact that the fire got out of hand. Uh, do you think this is the sole source of the blame, that who applied the cloud in the policies, uh, do you think it was victimising the poor for aesthetic purposes, for richer people, or do you think it's uh, the environmentalists fault?
2: Um, Well, we've seen Mm. almost the overnight birth of what seems like a million experts on cladding and sprinkler (laughs) systems and all the rest of the sort of technical details that are in the frame just now in terms of the discussion. I mean, maybe one useful thing that this podcast could do is not add to the speculation, actually, Mm. uh, in in many ways, because I I, I think we do need to wait until someone, a technical expert, actually looks Mm. properly at at, uh, how this fire has come about about and how it spread. I mean, just in general terms, I mean, I, I think um, on the cladding and the sprinkler system, I mean, these, these things cannot be viewed in isolation. Uh, you, you specify a cladding with all sorts of constraints around it, uh, one of them being monetary, actually, and unless we're saying that money should never be in consideration, then that's uh, always going to be the case, uh, and a, a cladding is specified in, in the context of um, not only technically how it's fixed but the kind of partitions that are uh, uh, stipulated in, in terms of st- stopping fire spread and uh, lots of other considerations so it's it is possible to have uh, devise a fire system where uh, for example you you say to people to stay in flats um, if you have a particular building specification that caters for that now uh, that may or may may not not have been properly done in this instance we don't know but I, I i don't think we can speculate and it's illegitimate to say that it was the wrong cladding or there should have been sprinklers without considering the wider context so i I'd just i'd, I'd almost re- refrain from uh uh taking a position on that uh,
0: something certainly certainly which has emerged where there has been a lot of criticism towards Meg when she went to visit the victims uh, she was said to show a lack of empathy, uh, sort of like she basically couldn't even communicate with another human being, she was very robotic. Whilst on the other hand, Corbyn received great plaudits for going around hugging the victims, act, acting very symph- uh, sympathetic, uh, and showing emotion. Uh, do you think this is a good indicator of how good our politicians are at serving us and our needs? Do you think they have to be
1: empathetic and emotional? I think that it's not a useful thing to talk about. I think that there's two different... On the one hand, the things Alistair has talked about are the things that need talking about. Mm. I mean, Just to say on this, they had the police commander on last night who gave a list of things which needed looking at in the block. The electricity, the cladding, why the fire spread, the role of the management company, the role of the tenants, complaints, why they hadn't been acted on, a whole list of practical things. That's what needs to be done. And the thing I would add in addition, particularly, is that the tenants who seem to have been treated as pestilence by the local council for years need to be taken seriously in this whole process. That's obvious. On the other hand, there's a public discussion, which doesn't help with this process at all, because whatever you think of Theresa May's actions her empathy or lack of empathy when she went to visit this, that doesn't help solve any of these practical problems dealing with the immediate aftermath or subsequently personally I don't really care if she's empathetic or not I do think her going along to the place and not meeting anybody who was really idiotic and anybody in their right mind would have insisted on doing that but that's a matter for her but having said that whether, in, you know, she subsequently met people, Corbyn was empathetic, you know, there's another agenda going on, which is basically continue, continue attempt to continue the general election as if it hadn't finished, which, is a, which has got nothing to do with this fire and doesn't help the victims of the fire or anybody else who could potentially be in similar situations.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, i agree with everything that's been said. The, the the other issue for me is the, the whole regeneration agenda, which is what I've been looking at. I mean, I'm researching it at the moment. And the regeneration agenda, really, to me, has reframed what should be a practical discussion about meeting people's fundamental needs, housing, um, and also their fundamental aspirations, good housing. Um, it's, it's reframed it in a sort of cultural... Um, Uh, language reinvented it and this this then does come back to this thing of image and really you know they use the language of re-imaging so it all comes down to um, a cultural image um, factors rather than the sort of nuts and bolts of actually building houses or building economies and building cities that actually work for people and so I think the whole regeneration agenda has taken us into this kind of battle of all sorts of um, different imaginations about what a city or what an economy should be like and we really see that it has to be pulled back into the real world
2: Yeah I I think, I mean obviously the location of of, uh, the tower in the borough which uh, the Labour Party took in the general election, which has long been talked about in terms of its extremes of wealth and poverty, is particularly uh, significant in terms of the way that the, the the whole thing has been discussed in the past week. I mean, I've been particularly struck by um, the the idea that Corbyn's put forward and has been repeated by various other people of of uh, going and occupying the empty homes of of these rich people. Which, first of all, I think is is overclaimed for in terms of how many. Many of these homes are. But secondly, and more problematically, is a complete avoidance of the type of discussion that we need in terms of how we house people properly. Because uh, going and commandeering a, commandeering a few homes is not going to uh, resolve uh, the housing uh, problem. And it's striking in in a way that in in the. Way that Pauline's talked about about the, the way that it's it's the values it's the these Tories the uncaring greedy uh, dismissive of the needs of of the people the way the way that that's been talked about it's like the problem only started in two thousand and ten right. but uh, you know the 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 problem dates way back before that and if anything. Uh, I would say that the the crux of the housing problem really became much more deeply rooted during the period of the new Labour government from 1997 onwards. Uh, They developed the urban renaissance agenda which constrained uh, the way that we could build cities, we couldn't build outwards, we had to build upwards. They uh, put an environmental agenda to the fore which while it's, it's uh, not impossible to build our environmentally efficient buildings uh, at the same time as building a lot of buildings, has, in the way it's been presented, had, had the effect of constraining the number of houses uh, that have been built. And, and I, I think the, the, prob- the housing problem is far more deep-rooted in, in, uh, as a result of that period of new Labour government than probably anything that's, that's uh, emerged since.
0: Uh, so, moving on uh, to the Finsbury Park attack uh, on Sunday, to me the most striking thing about the discourse around this so far has been people uh, trying to sort of claim the word terror in order to ascribe it to the attack. Is has uh, been quite doggedly saying that we have to call this a terrorist attack, almost in an invert sort of way. Like, uh in the reaction to London Bridge, when Theresa May actually came out and said this is Islamist terror, uh, Jeff, do you think it's a terror attack akin to the same way as uh, Westminster or London Bridge or Manchester, uh, or is it something slightly different?
1: I think it, well, it's slightly different in in as much as the Islam the Islamist attacks mm-hmm. in Manchester and London are part of a of a of a pattern, even though they're not necessarily linked themselves and this was somebody just going in, deciding to drive in, in into a mosque. That doesn't make it any less horrific, or it might have been casualties, but it doesn't make it any less horrific as an event and a spectacle. The thing which they've all got in common, which you've alluded to, is the language and what you're, the way you're supposed to talk mm. around these things. It's like the whole thing is like walking on eggshells. So the, the attacks in London Bridge, you got to be wary about calling it Islamist in case it upsets people or it sets the wrong agenda or whatever now this other one you're supposed to call it terror whatever it's like there's a correct way of talking about things to me the important thing is people should be able to talk openly Whatever language they use, and I wouldn't necessarily use terrorism for the Finsbury Park one, but people need to talk openly about all these events and put it all on the table. We need a wide open discussion, which maybe will offend some people, but it's much better that we have a broad discussion of people who've got all kinds of different views on this, many of whom we will find offensive, and have a proper debate, than restrict the debate to a very narrow terrain where everybody has to talk the right language Mm. and all these other people feel totally alienated from the debate and then maybe it doesn't have such good consequences. So I do think that the thing you've highlighted there in terms of the language of it Mm. is very striking in relation to all these things and we should just talk about it however we want to talk about it, have a wide open discussion. Only through that can you begin, hopefully, to come through? You know, to move, move beyond it. If, you, if people don't feel they can talk openly about it, everything's pushed under the surface. You, things, you know, you'll never solve these problems. Yeah, do you think this plays
0: into this idea of politics of value as well? This idea that our language is so loaded with meaning.
3: I think so. I mean, the, the you know, a word like terrorist has always been, I mean, loaded in the sense mm-hmm. that um, you people would by using that word. Obviously, um, it it suggests where you stand on a particular issue. It's a pejorative Mm. word. It's not a positive word. It's not like rebel or freedom fighter. So there's clearly, that's always been the case. I think what's different today is the weight that is put on this, however. And I think that does come from a kind of... I certainly come across it in the academic field, where Mm. there's a huge um, emphasis placed on discourse and critical discourse, um, and an idea that somehow words and um, symbols are more important because um, they're kind of insidious and also they reinforce structures of power and so on. And this is a very strong idea in the academy where um, you know social reality is almost takes a back seat, but it's a constructed kind of reality of words and symbols. And um, I think that that is trying to stake a claim in society. I don't think... I think most people don't... most. Most, the, the public don't really get it or think along those lines mm-hmm. and, and I think sometimes it's quite baffling why words seem to matter so much um, and why people are so careful about what they say um, and so I think this huge emphasis on, on narratives and discourse again is a kind of retreat just from reality into a sort of academic, academicising everything really mm-hmm. rather than trying to solve things.
2: Yeah, it was interesting uh, listening to Ian Blair on the radio this morning and it was almost as if at one point he was wondering uh, aloud uh, where he, he sort of mused as to whether it was crime or hate crime or terrorism uh, before quickly concluding that part of the discussion because it's almost like he seemed to have realised he'd gone a little bit off script in terms of not uh, staking more, more firmly the claim that it was terrorism. And I just think I think it is... Uh, legitimate and right probably to question whether Terrorism is a particularly useful term for this attack. I mean, as far as I can see um, from, from uh, the investigations, and obviously everybody's scrambling around just now to try and find out about this guy who, who seems to have carried out the attack, but it did seem to uh, be the case that his family had no idea he was racist. It doesn't seem to be the case that he's got links to right-wing groups or any of the assumptions uh, along those lines. Um, he does seem to have gone out and got very drunk and abused people. Uh, before he made his way up to London. So the, the kind of premeditated terror uh, that we associate, I think, with terrorism... Uh, I think it's legitimate to at least raise the question as to whether this this fits that and that's what made even more bizarre Theresa May's uh, almost unseemly scramble to declare that it was terrorism yesterday. She kind of marched up there and it was almost like she's now very much in reactive mode to the troubles that she's experienced over the last 10 days where she's been castigated for not uh, reacting uh, more quickly and kind of getting with the flow of the kind of values discussion. So You can see that um, this discussion just now around values is is, is really problematic. Because once again, what the outcome is likely to be is probably uh, to undermine uh, attempts to actually have a reasonable uh, discussion about it. And I thought, just finally, there's an interesting um, article in The Guardian uh, yesterday or this morning perhaps, uh, by Sadiq Khan, where there's almost... He, he just spends the whole article attempting to assert that Londoners have uh, these decent cosmopolitan values. And it's, it just comes across as very strange that, first of all, it's, it's kind of addressed to Londoners rather than the country, which other attacks have been. But secondly, there's just this uh, endless attempt to assert our cosmopolitan liberal values which in some cases, you, you know, are open to question in, 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 in recent times.
0: Okay, uh, so moving on uh, to the DUP uh, and the view from Ireland. So I find it kind of strange uh, that already this, this hasn't happened yet. At the end of last week I was sort of saying this was meant to be easy. It was meant to be a perfect marriage in many ways. <laughs> Why hasn't it happened happened yet, even going into the weekend? Now we're almost at Wednesday, still hasn't happened. Uh, So why hasn't it happened? Uh, And I don't know, do you think this question is legitimate, Pauline, uh, in regards to the peace process in Ireland? Will the DUP and part of the government actually threaten the peace process?
3: Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is there's a thing, there's the peace process mm. and then there's peace. Mm. And they're two quite different things. So that the, the way that the peace process and mm. the peace agreement is put to the centre stage, mm. it may very well have you know, destabilised the peace process. In the real world, meanwhile, there is no evidence. I think, I think most people would agree there is no evidence. Of people in um, either the Nationalist or um, Unionist communities or camps mobilizing for war in fact quite the reverse one of the now increasingly sort of disconnected and meaningless um, dissident Republican groups the continuity IRA actually just stood down amidst all the noise it just but the, the significant thing is nobody cares because they don't have any kind of meaning. So I think in terms of peace, it's, nothing's changing. But in this world of treaties and agreements and processes, yes, it could destabilise. I think what's interesting, however, is that the, the destabilising of that is being done by the people who say they don't want it destabilised. So in a, in a way, by putting the process and the border, with the border has been there all along. Naturally, of course, the Britain's renegoti- renegotiating its relationship too. The EU throws that up into question again. But to politicise it in such a way as to make it the centre of a potential conflict, when it's actually a more interesting conversation is around the common travel area, and around the kind of, you know, the, maybe a more positive reconfiguration of relations between Britain, Ireland, Northern Ireland. That you, you could have that debate, you could, and that would be a much more positive thing to do. Um, but I think it's being used, I think it's being—it's it's politicking, and I think that um, it suits a lot of agendas just to sort of make it into some great drama. Um, but as I say, the irony is that people who say that, that we must prioritise the peace process are the very ones who are kind of playing with it and destabilising it in a way that actually possibly could blow up in everyone's face. I don't see much sign of it though. Mm. Um, and I suppose with the with the Arlene Foster and Theresa May, I don't know why there hasn't been a... I, I'm not sure why there hasn't just been a deal done. As you say, mm-hmm. it's the most natural thing in the world. Minority, government needs mm-hmm. extra votes. The DUP, like most small parties, always ready to go in there and punch above their weight mm-hmm. and try and get a bit of extra traction for their manifesto needs. Their manifesto is actually a sort of... I'd, I'd just describe it as a sort of um, blue Labour, red Tory kind of thing. It's very welfare state. It's very pro-investment in public services. Um, they're obviously, um, you know, all the other stuff, the sort of social conservatism is something they tend to play down, I think, when it comes to actually national politics. They're not going to be asking for that. And I guess that the reason that the deal hasn't been done is probably more connected to the fact that the, the, you know, the, the border and Britain's relationship to Northern Ireland and yeah. Ireland has been placed at number one or number two in the Brexit negotiations, it's very high on the agenda. It makes it difficult to do deals in that situation because whatever deal they do, it's going to be interpreted in terms of the politics of conflict rather than just the bread and butter politics of political deals.
0: Yeah. Uh, And so one of the things the general election all those 11 days ago was meant to do was put us in a stable, strong position for the Brexit negotiations, uh, which began yesterday, uh, again seemed to have been swept along uh, and underneath, hidden behind the tide of other events. Uh, But I think it's a good point to ask ourselves now. Maybe what we should be looking for in the Brexit negotiations. How do you think uh, we should be approaching uh, these? What do you think we should be asking for uh, from the EU? Uh, and how do you see the path moving forward from this point, Alison?
2: Um Well, I suppose the the starting point for me really is is um that we need to achieve Brexit. I mean that's yeah, that's yeah. the thing is is that so many people just now are talking about um, the particular way that we need to have a relationship with a single market or the customs union or this or that. Um, slightly more technical aspects of our relationship with the EU, uh, areas which I'm not really uh, have enough detailed knowledge of how all those things work to be able to comment on. So I suppose, for me, the starting point and what needs to happen is that we need politically, which was for me what the the EU referendum was about, it was the political decision uh, to uh, control our own circumstances and our own destiny. Um, how, how is it that we can achieve that while having the best possible relationship to do all the other economic uh, and trading stuff that we obviously need to do, in which there's all sorts of different treaties uh, within Europe and worldwide that govern how that needs to operate so that that's not but the, the technical aspects of and details of how that resolves itself is not the priority it's what follows uh, from the political priority of Brexit.
3: Yeah.
1: I think that the important, look there's negotiations going on in Brussels or Strasbourg or wherever they are on any particular day um, and they will continue, the important thing uh, really, will be what's decided here in the UK and, and a, a lack of clarity after the election. Mm. And so, whether the government and, and the people who are in favour of uh, a kind of a, a Brexit, uh, a meaningful Brexit, uh, still have the authority and, and can uh, see that through. And I think that's really uh, what will be decided over the coming months both within the Labour Party, which fought the election, which said they were formally supported Brexit, but now it's obvious that many of their MPs don't and won't support it, so there's things there to be sorted out, there's divisions within the Conservative Party. So I think it's the job of the, the uh, populace of the UK, uh, particularly if you're in favour of Brexit, to keep a close eye on it and to check that what you want to happen will happen, because that's what will determine how much pressure the EU people are put under. Even if you only see yesterday, when they're negotiating over the order of negotiations, you already have sections of the British press, which are against Brexit, who are almost taking the side of the EU Mm -hmm. in the the way they're reporting what happened on the first day. I don't actually know the results of what happened on the first day, Mm -hmm. but it would seem fairly banal and they're using it to bash the British Brexit team, so you can see uh, w- what side they're on. And so, uh, I think a lot of those things will be determined by uh, uh, by events closer to home, and how much pressure the government and the, uh, 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 feels under to make sure that the a, a Brexit deal, a proper Brexit deal, is done at the end of the end of the process.
3: Yeah um I I I agree with 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 all of that. I think as well that um the way this is being approached and I, you know I said earlier on about the way that the elections over so suddenly everyone's negotiating Brexit and talking about it again after it's been kind of off the table. I think it's a real mistake because for me what I think is worth fighting for are the the real relationships between real people in in Britain and in other um, EU member states. Going back to Ireland, the common travel area is a really important thing and it's it's based on real relationships between families and friends and real people who travel between the different parts of Ireland and Britain. Um, So it's a priority for me but not for the reasons, not that it's a bargaining chip, it's just that the starting point should be that um, whatever deals are achieved, that they work for everybody. And um, I think that the the EU as an institution is showing its hand, really. I think a lot of this is um, it's really, you know, we're seeing very clearly that um, it's not really about people at all. It's about sort of political interests and about kind of advancing one position against another, and, and, and economic interests, and people seem to come very low down in the um, in the priorities, really. So I think that um, if I was negotiating, I'm very glad that I'm not having to go and do that. I would certainly be very, um, I'd make a lot of, um, I'd draw attention to um, the, the need to actually get an agreement and an arrangement and, um, and, and move on from that that actually meets the needs of real people rather than using people as kind of chess men against each other or bargaining chips against, um, and against each other.
0: And finally, uh, Paul, you're in town uh, tonight to chair uh, the Democracy in the Arts in Europe event with the question, what future for the arts? Uh, it's organised by Invoke Democracy Now! and is a Richmond Cinema. Uh, so Pauline what future are for the arts after Brexit Uh, is there any chance of a Brexit moment for the arts
3: I think it's I think it's already happening Mm. Um, I think in a way um, the I think the big part of, of the arts are the audience and the people, mm. um, and I think that people are um, just—I—I'm I, very much aware of this—that people are actually very interested in what's happening. We're all kind of struggling to keep um, on top of it all because there seems to be so much happening. But it also seems so urgent, I think, to a lot—a lot of people now—to mm. make sense of things. There's a sort of urgency about it, rather than saying it. Well, it's nothing to do with us now. Suddenly, it is to do with us. Mm. So I think that kind of reinvigoration of the audience is a great thing and that will I think absolutely have an impact I went to see the um, Life of Galileo last night at the Young Vic absolutely recommended not only is it a fantastically energetic reinvigoration of a play which is a great play but actually often quite wordy and sort of Intellectual and academic, almost in in some of the uh, the questions of the individual versus society, the the um, the elevation of human reason as opposed to the kind of emotion and so on. And these questions can be quite academic. Last night it just came to life, and the the everyone gets it now, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And the the production was full of energy and full of excitement. Um, and I would like to see more of that I don't think artists have to respond to this I think some of them some people will just you know go away and lock the door lock themselves in their studio maybe however um, in, a, in a sense though it, that doesn't really matter I think that the appetite for um, for real important um, and you know meaningful imaginings of what's going on is such a refreshing change after decades really of this sort of um really, well, you know, new labour kind of um, art and, you know, re-engaging society and all of that. I think it's actually happening now in many ways, which is a great thing.
2: Um, Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the audience there. I suppose we can talk about the audience and the artists and the cultural sector in general. I think, uh, for me, it was very noticeable that the first person after the election that I saw come out and say, ah, this election signifies a change in direction, there's no mandate for hard Brexit, was actually people from the cultural sector. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things that we've noted over over the last months is... Just how the cultural sector um, and their representatives, uh, how out of touch they've been with uh, the you know, wider opinion in the country, and that seems to me, uh, post-election, to not really have have changed in in the way that they're now asserting that we've got to you know re- reject Brexit and somehow tie our, our uh wagon hitch our wagon to to that particular. Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of softer Brexit stance, if you like. It was really interesting to see a representative from the music sector say, well, government must listen to the music industry. We are the future uh, of this uncertain world. And you just think, well, why the hell would the government want to listen to the music industry in in, in that respect? I mean, they might have something valid to say more generally. So I, I, I just think that um, may, maybe it is the case that, artists themselves and audiences need to assert themselves a little bit more and kind of break free of that uh, officialdom within the arts and the cultural sector. Uh, ultimately, actually, the, the kind of one of the most conservative forces just now, I think, that's, that's one of the interesting uh, issues just now, is, is that uh, people that you, we've often thought of as the kind of radical people that are out there a little bit are proving themselves to be one of the most conservative uh, uh, groups around just now. And it would be good uh, to see... Who is who is around that can inject a bit of kind of radical energy and imagination into the arts in whatever form or interest that particular you know that might take.
0: With thirty-five percent of new MPs having an arts and culture background, uh, maybe asked as warnings uh, pro- uh, prove a bit more sinister than he imagines uh, <laughs> If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, uh, please uh, do look for our archive. You can find that on InstituteofIdeas.com/podcast. Uh, and also subscribe on iTunes to get uh, our podcasts uh, hot off the press.